I know you think I've got it all together. You do? Mm, not quite. One of the things I do know how to do really well is make things work. You know, I can take a situation and just make it okay. I've always been able to do that. But it's work. And this, this isn't, I don't know what this is. <laughs> but it's, well, it's effortless. effortless. <laughs> I've never, ever, ever had that before. Tell me about it. I didn't think it was ever going to happen to me, so great. Where do we find it? In the pit stop? Yeah. Thanks, God. <laughs> well, better this than nothing, I guess. I guess. Want to spend the night with me? Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb and this is my co-host Mike. We begin a new trilogy today with a 1991, I can't even call it a classic, even though I almost want to, because I feel like there's nothing else like it. Defending Your Life by Albert Brooks. I have always been kind of harsh to Albert Brooks in my lifetime because I think he's so talented and so good at what he does. And I find that the problem, the issues that I have with all of his work is like, I wish he wasn't in them. I think he's a brilliant <laughs> writer. I think he's a, he has. He almost got a spit take from me on that. I was taking a drink. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's like, I like everything about him, <laughs> but him on screen, mm. which is kind of a mm. weird thing to say, but. I immediately uh, gravitated towards it in, in, in a huge way. And this is kind of coming off of watching the film Real Life uh, by him as well, uh, which I I think is uh, a completely uh, underappreciated uh, masterpiece. Uh, you brought Defending Your Life, I think, to this trilogy. So I want to I wanna ask you about this. Like, uh, how, how did you come up with this one? <clears throat> I had... Uh... I think I'd seen this one a couple of times. Uh, I'm pretty sure I did a, a prior podcast on it. I couldn't tell you what the, the reasoning was or, or the theme necessarily. Um, so that's at least within the last decade. And I think I saw it earlier um, because strangely, I think in the uh, late 90s, um, I believe it was 99, he had a film called Mother. I think it was with Debbie Reynolds, I think. And... Um, I worked at the video store at the, at the time and boy, um, it was, it was hard then because we couldn't play any R rated movies up on the, the TVs. So I'm basically playing stuff that I want to listen to. So I have to, <laughs> I have to find a lot of PG 13 PG movies with snappy dialogue, which is not 
not ideal in the you know the late nineties for a teenager that likes Tarantino and Kevin Smith movies to find things of that that nature. <laughs> uh, I believe Truman Show got a lot of play. Not that it has great dialogue, but it has the the score, the music, and you know it's just a generally sweet film. Um, <clears throat> so um, I believe Mother fit that. And so I was like, oh, it's Albert Brooks. It should be, you know, amusing enough. And then I was like, oh, this is awful. Like, this is, he is, <laughs> like, he, he is, he did not have like a late stage Woody Allen uh, resurgence as far as a director. Uh, he's great in Drive as, as the, the villain. That was, that was nice to see him pop back up in that, that type of role. I hate to um, riff off of your opening because, like I said, it had been somewhere in the last decade I watched this. And I remember, of course, loving Meryl Streep. Um, you know, she is this oh, sort God, of yes. literal, I mean, I guess not quite literally an angel because this doesn't take place in heaven. It's the in-between place. But she is this sort of angelic presence of just good and like every everything you would want in life is just to, to live it with her and the joy that she has in, in judgment city here. <laughs> Unfortunately, she's paired with Albert Brooks, who for as much as he's got sweetness and, and warmth and redemption on the brain, he can't quite bring it together as a performer. I also don't really think as a director either here, because there are so many moments I wish they would hang back on and, uh, you know, the the very nature of the film is that he is a man watching highlights and lowlights of his life that really show that he's not matured much, that he's still kind of that same scared little kid, which is a, is a great sequence <laughs> directed very poorly. <laughs> Two parents on the cusp of domestic violence both turn to their crying child and then immediately embrace one another. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm like, ah, oh, God, like, is this like the, uh, in, in judgment city, are they doing like an NFL live? Like we're going to go to the red zone. Like we're just going to just get the hits, just get the replays. <laughs> like it's so cumbersome the way it's, it's, it's cobbled together. And there's, there's a, mo a great moment where they, they sort of break with the tradition. His, his lawyer character <clears throat> rip torn actually, um, says as much like, Oh, we're, we're going to cut to, a moment in his life that took place the night before in judgment city, not in his earthly life. And it's replaying him fumbling. Well, I mean, it's not a crass movie, but basically the invitation to go to bed to spend the night with Meryl Streep. And he expresses, he doesn't want to, he's afraid that if he does, it won't basically live up to what he hopes. So he'd rather spend his entire, the rest of his days missing her than experiencing life with her. And it's set up to be like this, awesome beautiful movie moment and both as a performer and a director he he really cuts it short he he really, i think he he undercuts a lot of those things so it's a movie that it always has me thinking that i love it but then when i watch it i don't love it i really like it but like it's like yeah. the memory yeah, of yeah. it of experiencing it and the like the mood it puts me in as far as my own life experiences I adore it, <laughs> but then, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's like I'm watching a uh, lower tier <clears throat> stage version of this. I'm not watching the original cast. I'm watching like the touring company, <laughs> except this, this is the original cast. This is the only defending your life, even though there are other, you know, other films obviously that use this similar premise. So I guess I'm, I'm probably the more negative version of what you were 
saying in the intro is that I'm not much an Albert Brooks the performer, especially I guess especially here. You're essentially watching or being forced to watch the Friedkin Twelve Angry Men over and over <laughs> instead of the original. I get it. No, flip that, I, I'm, buddy. I'm right. <laughs> No, I'm 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 right there with you. Uh, and actually, Albert Brooks has stated that when it comes to movie making, you know, like the script, the script is what matters because that's the blueprint. And as a director, he's just there to make sure the script is uh, done justice on screen. And so, really, I think for him, direction really is more. Okay, let me make sure everything gets edited properly so that the comedic timing is is just right and it works on screen rather than let's be a bit more artistic or what's best for this emotionally i agree with you and him as a performer as a comedic performer and maybe as a character who is supposed to be a little unlikable i think he's fantastic when you have to sympathize with him and kind of root for him i think that's where it's hard because he doesn't quite have that on-screen charisma like uh, I guess a modern example would be kind of like Seth Rogen, like the schluppy guy who's kind of a jerk, but you're like you kind of want to see him succeed by the end of it. Albert Brooks doesn't have that. And and the the all the positives you're mentioning, he absolutely is knocking it out of the park. He really is. Uh, uh the the being afraid is is con- and one of the ways that they do that now now, now i'm now i feel like i'm just gonna go right into like my list of stuff uh, uh the numbers numbers are a big part of this film and, and his concept of scorekeeping um every single time uh, you see a reaction of somebody when he says yeah they're reviewing nine days and they're like oh <laughs> everybody's giving in that <laughs> and he knows <laughs> and he knows that uh, uh meryl streep's here julia she's like oh i'm four days <laughs> he's like damn it i'm losing which let me just tell you is the opposite of what podcasters will want. I want as many days with my own material as possible. Like, yeah, that what I only get nine. Come on, play play all the hits. Like, let's let's do right. encore. <laughs> the uh, the percentage of the, the your brain that you're using. He's seeing all these different uh, individuals here in this uh, um, Judgment City Purgatory that uh, are using oh 47, 48, 49 percent of their brains, and and he uses three uh, according to. Uh, Rip Torn, um, how much you give to charity, uh, how much money you make. All these numbers are a way for him to kind of keep track if he's winning and, and whether he's being valued. Uh, and and I, I love that. It, it, it kind of um, – because you only have like 10 minutes or so with him in life. You are spending most of your time with him in death. And so uh, you really get a great sense of who he is. Did you – I mean it's a – fairly easy gag they're setting up that uh he's <laughs> he's valued by his company <clears throat> that they get him a cd player <clears throat> they get him a lot of cds um there doesn't seem to be any particular taste this man has which i felt like are they setting him up like you said are they setting him up to be unlikable that he doesn't even have his own taste it's just what other people give him to listen to and they seem to realize that about him like don't ask him he doesn't know what he doesn't know what he wants <laughs> Um, but the fact that, uh, he's carrying around the CD player and then they mention like, oh, you have one in this new car you're buying, which as you said, is meant to validate. And even that he can't be happy with. He compares it to another BMW, which to me looks the same, except his is a convertible. So I'm like, what are you complaining about? What are you bitching about? The the fact that, you know, he didn't even know that he was getting 
a CD player in the car, which <laughs> lead to his death. He just he just said, "Give me the best, <laughs> give me the best," and he didn't even know what the best entailed, and ends up fucking killing him because he, he's a man with no taste. He can't, he can't decide for for himself. I did feel like there were some weird comedic bits in here that almost it's like they got in the way of my process of wanting to really examine this this guy's life. Like in the middle section, uh, Rip Torn has something come up and it's it's played for laughs that he gets this horrible attorney that's supposed to be so much better who basically just lets him hang himself in front of these judges of his existence. I didn't really dig that. I mean, I understood, you know, in, in the individual moment, uh, this is kind of amusing, but I, I felt like, okay, so this is just a segment where we're just continuing to beat up on our lead character. I wanted to see more of his life that showed different facets of it because I, I understand the hang up that maybe you you do stop maturing at a point and you are who you are like in your core. And so if his core problem is his fear of like the things that can hurt him, I get that. But it also does tend to feel like Jesus Christ, like when he was in middle school, this was it. He was just he was just going to become a larger <laughs> middle schooler who works in an ad agency. <laughs> so at, at times I feel like uh, Albert Brooks is maybe even too mean to his character. It's a little mean spirited because he, he does seem like early on his, his best example of um, like his humanity as being the toddler, like in his little playpen weeping that his parents are being cruel to one another. Weeping at the side of cruelty seems to be the best thing that he, the best character trait he ever had. And <laughs> they don't give him any opportunities to, <laughs> to show that. Um, his character does bring up like, why is this all about money? And I, I think maybe that's like part of the Albert Brooks persona though. Like, like the uh, lost in America is all about the damn, the the nest egg. Like he is a man like throughout his, his cinematic career um, possessions and thinking like that this, and that probably has something to do with that. He's not your, uh, certainly not your typical leading man. This is not Warren Beatty. This is, so I guess moviegoers are like Albert Brooks in the lead. You need to justify this to me. Did he do well financially? Is there a reason I'm following this main <laughs> character around? <laughs> I sound like I'm being negative, but it's like in a strange way, I'm rooting so hard for the character. I'm like begging it, like begging it to show me that he deserves this happy ending. Cause I want, I want him to get it. I don't care if we have to cheat to get to Meryl Streep. I'm rooting for the character, but sometimes, uh, it, I think it is he, – he beats himself up too much for, for my taste. I, I believe in his inherent goodness from the get-go. And I think that that is him – Albert Brooks, the writer and director. I think that's him uh, being a little bit self-indulgent because he has seen an interview where, like, he just thought that was so funny that uh, Rip Torn's character, he's like this a carefree, uh, devil-may-care, a very confident – uh, lawyer, and then uh, with, and his character uh, Daniel is very worried about it, and then he gets one who's like completely opposite and doesn't do it. And he just thought it was really funny, and it might just be yeah, it, it does go on for a bit, and you do feel. But I mean, every little thing, even to the point where Meryl Streep's character Julia, her hotel is so much nicer than his. Like <laughs> he does take quite a beating. Um, one of the things that you said uh, about his goodness. That aspect of the character is almost irrelevant because 
Albert Brooks wanted to take a film about the afterlife and get rid of anything religious and 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 anything about morality away from it. And that's really interesting. So then you, now you've got morality versus fear slash courage. So now you are valuing uh, and evaluating human beings on their courage and, and whether or not uh, uh, they fear things, which is questionable uh, because almost libertine in a way. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not that far. I'm pretty sure the Zodiac Killer didn't fear too much because he took he took a lot of <laughs> <Right>. risks, but <laughs> I don't want him moving <laughs> forward in this game of life. <laughs> you and I are on the exact same page here, man, because I was just going to say, think about all the narcissists, the psychopaths, the serial killers. <laughs> Would they even make it this far? I know that there is a little bit of world building here where Riptorn is like, oh, you know, we don't deal with uh, children. We can't judge them. They they move right along and all that. And the teenagers is kind of a joke. They go to wardrobe or something. But and that, that's what's interesting. So I do wonder if, like, if you're going to make it this far, you have to be some level of good. But But that kind of speaks to the universality of the concept of fear and courage and how we live our lives, that anybody uh, of any religion and any culture, any background can come to this film and kind of accept that, okay, well, you have to – which, again, the, the kind of the common thread in most religions – uh, just be good. As a serious man, you know, said, just be a good boy. I came into it as a a class warrior, uh, as always, where I'm like, gee, I, I bet the uh, person that was born wealthy, uh, they didn't fear as much. <laughs> and they were able to make very strong, <laughs> fast decisions because they had all these opportunities in front of them. <laughs> they could give uh, to charity without a thought. They could live fearlessly and recklessly at, at times i'm like what are they judged by but the film is not interested necessarily in the world building it just kind of wants to put the screws to brooks because when we do get a comparison <laughs> piece in meryl streep's it's it's her like hey come come watch one of my memories and it's yeah both sides wanting to replay her memory because it's just so so good. It's her saving her children from fire and the family pet. It's it's so extreme the other way where it's like, God, running up the score, Meryl. And, and the prosecutor in that scene is like, I'm sorry to take up time. I, I just wanted to watch it again. <laughs> like, he is not interested <laughs> it, at all in, in, in sending her back to Earth. She's mm -hmm. gone. She's gone. What did you think about that aspect of the film? The, um, <laughs> like, there's another beat that I really like where he... You know, spoiler alert for defending your life, which uh, unfortunately, I guess when we were preparing to do this episode was on on HBO, but it's it's now been removed, uh, like everything else that HBO is currently purchasing. <laughs> HBO Max, <laughs> Albert Brooks also had to go. Um, there's a moment where um, Brooks has to has to watch like him asking for for a race with his wife. And it's yet again, a, another, you know, it's a setup for watch this, this man fail. And I, I, I did start to think that like, so are they trying to get the point across to him that he has defined his life by money? And, and our character is, you know, the whole 3% of the brain, is he too stupid to understand? Because he, he says, why is this always about money? And it's like the lawyers themselves are like, come on, you're almost there. You've almost, you've almost got it. But he is so torn up and they, they, they speed past it. I don't know if it's performance issues or as you said, just the directing that 
Al Brooks doesn't want to hang too long on something. When he gets his verdict that um, he has to go back, you know, they, they, he hasn't really conquered his, his fear, whatever that may be, he's crushed. And, and I, I didn't know how I, I would necessarily take that news because, I mean, in the world building, they're like, you won't remember any of this. Obviously, you don't remember your past lives. You hope that there's some sort of your essence that goes back into your your, your reincarnated self that you can you can advance forward. But it says something to his character, like you know, Meryl Meryl Streep would probably love to go back because she she lived a full life. So the only oh, ones sure. who who don't want to go back are the ones that's like, please God, don't make me live again. Which <laughs> is is weird because most movies. Uh, you know, or most people, they kind of wish they had that superpower. Like, I wish I could do that over again. If I knew now, like I would spend my youth in a much more productive way, a uh, much more fulfilling way, something of that nature. What did you think about seeing a character that's like, please don't make, please don't give me a second chance again. I don't want to do it again. It's too painful. Well, see, it's hard to answer that question because Albert Brooks has also stated, he's like, originally I just wanted to end the film uh, of him going back. Uh, you know, to being told it goes back, and then it fades to, like, a farm, a pasture, and there's just a cow grazing. And the, I guess the assumption being that he's now a cow. So how is he supposed to live without fear <laughs> in a being that does not have the, that's, you know, the capabilities? That's, that's a terrible ending. I'm much, much happier with the <laughs> grand gesture we get with the, you know, the, the chase, yes. chasing down the, the bus to the, I guess, the next stage in human existence with Meryl Streep, obviously. Of course, and and he has stated he's like once we filmed that ending, like there's no other ending that it could have had. Like that is absolutely the right ending. It, uh, the two, the contrast of between those two characters, as you kind of mentioned, is very interesting. Daniel is somebody who uh, one of the biggest fears that he has is what other people think of of him, and then yeah. when they look at him, anything that he's doing, and that is something that's Eating very very mm-hmm. relatable. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> yes, and, and you know Meryl Streep is there. You you let her slurp as much pasta as she wants, and and, and of course that's as me somebody watching it. But of course, if I'm in issues, I'm kind of I hate to say it, but I'm also be like, oh bite, my god, just Webb. bite it. You're on a date with Meryl Streep. You're telling her, hey, wrap it up, <laughs> eat your food the way I want you to. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. She is such a wonderful contrast. Like she is. Fearless in that she does not, she's going to have herself a good time and it's not, and it's not like she's doing something to affect other people. Like what she's doing is just all for her. I love that she gets up and asks, like, are you the prosecutor for, you know, Daniel there? It's like, I just want to let you know that he is great. Like, I, I love that. I love that she's able to just. I only disagree with you slightly. I think she is. Yes, she's, she's doing it for her and that she really knows no other way to live. Um, except with great enthusiasm. But I do think that it's a very light touch one that I could, you know, play in the, the video store days. It's it's a seduction of source. Like, come over to my side of life. Like I'm inviting you into this this moment. Stop worrying about what other people you're you're here with me. We're across the table. Yes, you see other people and you're concerned about them judging you, but they're not judging me. I'm not judging you. Like in fact it it goes on so long. I actually like start to tell him, like, what does Meryl Streep see? <laughs> Other than he makes the gag that he's the only age appropriate character for her in this. 
<laughs> no, I know. The first thing that I wrote down, as soon as like Meryl Streep kind of entered the film, the first note that I had was like, boy, man, a, a good sense of humor goes a long way. And that is something that I have learned very much in my life. Not that I'm saying I'm some, you know, uh, hideous chud like Dante is in Clerks, <laughs> but... <laughs> But it's like I know like how how important it is for uh, you to come across specifically like if you have a good sense of humor, man, like that'll make other people uh, um, uh, feel at ease with you in such a big way, and and especially the opposite sex. So I I believe it. I believe it. Let me put our listeners at ease, the the ones that maybe um, are titillated by by Webb's voice and know him only as the the audio experience for all their their hopes, <laughs> dreams, and desires. I've now been in this man's presence, and he is uh, very physically fit. I, I even commented on it that I was like, oh. looking good. And uh, so I'm just I you know put that in your as you're going to sleep. You, know, you have your little sleep timer for <laughs> trilogy and theory. <laughs> Webb's last thing you hear. Very physically fit man. I I appreciate that. I am I. You know what's funny is uh like I have seen photos of myself like a couple years prior because this whole physical fitness thing re- is just really a, a a recent phenomenon. And I'm and and the more you do it, the more you're like, oh, you you don't see the results right away. And then uh, yeah, I I definitely I fat shame my older versions of myself. I'm like God, and then and then I think about this too. I, I put. I kind of put myself in, uh, like, I feel very like Albert Brooks in this moment where I'm like, man, if I had just done this when I was in high school and college, <laughs> <laughs> I would have had more of a, a wild things like <laughs> lifestyle. <laughs> would not but have then I, I immediately I'm like, <laughs> let's say I, I put myself in that physical body. My mind is still mm-hmm. the the guy in the back of the party texting about how much the party sucks. I'm still <laughs> that guy. That's not going to change. So <laughs> that's why that's why I'm here podcasting about about uh, someone as wonderful as Albert Brooks can be. Uh, I think we're kind of on point. Mm-hmm. We both agree that uh, this this one is so close to being that uh, um, that instant classic, and it, it's almost there. <laughs> And and much like the movie, much like uh, Albert Brooks's character Daniel, I feel like the problem really is Albert Brooks, <laughs> despite the fact that he's the reason why it's, it's as good as it is. It's a weird situation to be in. It's like the um, the Woody Allen movies where you're glad uh, he cast someone else in the Woody Allen role. That's kind of feel oh, yeah. about this. Like if it could have been one where. You know, as we we always go back to Midnight in Paris, it's like if you could have had whatever version of of Owen Wilson in 1990, whenever they shot this, doing an Albert Brooks, whoever that was, uh, yeah, all timer. But you know, just recently within the last year, I think for its uh, 30th anniversary, had a Criterion Collection release, so it's only gained in esteem, even though it was not uh, was not a hit at all financially at the time. I do believe Roger Ebert was a pretty big fan of this one though this seems like an ebert movie i think he had that sort of he he usually seemed to gravitate towards the the the, the warmer films with the with the sweet messages he, yeah. he didn't really go come out with the bats on those. yes and, and that's kind of a recurring theme with albert brooks i feel like he's another one of those uh comedian comedians where he's like he was he's beloved respected lauded and just can't make a, a film that properly um, reflects like that, that he's never had a box office return that properly reflects what other people see 
uh, in him. And and so I'm I'm happy that uh, he got a, a Oscar nom, I think, for broadcast news. Uh, people love him in Drive, and I think he almost got – there was a push to get him an Oscar for that one too, but not quite. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that he had a little bit of a resurgence uh, in the 2000s. Um, uh, but I'm enjoying the back catalog for Albert Brooks. And hey, we'll always have Hank Scorpio. I can't tell like if you and I, as the two judges of Albert Brooks, I, th- I feel like we're like you're so close. You're going back to Earth, <laughs> like even this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you're not quite there. Your life's work <laughs> did not live up to the judgment of trilogy and theory. <laughs> welcome you on behalf of the president of the Globex Corporation. Me! Try the papayas. They're juicy and full of papayin. Makes you strong like Popeye. Popeye, papayin. Popeye, papayin. See? Same thing. Same Ah, uh, forget it. How are you? I'm Hank Scorpio. Wow, my boss. Don't call me that word. I don't like things that elevate me above the other people. I'm just like you. Oh, sure, I come later in the day, I get paid a lot more, and I take longer vacations, but I don't like the word boss. Hey, look at my feet. Okay. You like those moccasins? Look in your closet. There's a pair for you. Don't like them? Then neither do I. Get the hell out of here. Ha! Ever see a guy say goodbye to a shoe? Yes, once. <laughs>